Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Politico has a fascinating story that paints a Hunger Games scenario with the candidates for Senate in Ohio seeking Donald Trump's approval. It's tremendous, and it's the first thing we're going to talk about this morning on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Layla Tassi, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Friday was a long time coming. <laughs> you were saying that on Wednesday, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, did two more days. I yeah, was... and just to top things off, my power went off this morning. So I'd like to give a big shout out to my sister for allowing me to set up shop in her guest room. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't we couldn't let Jane not appear because like half the stories we're going to talk about went through her hands. Okay, let's start. This Hunger Games story from Politico blew my mind. The great detail about the four candidates just being miserable sycophants trying to get the approval of Donald Trump, who tried to overthrow our government and install a dictatorship. Layla Tassi, let's talk about this one. Yeah, I, I, this is, as you said, such great detail in the story, but almost so gross I couldn't make it to the bottom. So <laughs> Politico posted this story describing this fundraiser event that Donald Trump had hosted at his golf club in West Palm Beach that would benefit a Trump-endorsed Ohio candidate looking to oust one of the 10 House Republicans who backed his impeachment. And in attendance there was former state treasurer Josh Mandel, former state GOP chair Jane Timken, technology company executive Bernie Moreno, and investment banker Mike Gibbons. And as they were mingling during this pre-dinner cocktail reception, one of the Trump aides signaled to this group that he wanted to huddle with them in this room off the lobby. And there they sat down like contestants in The Apprentice, apparently at a circular table with Trump sitting in the middle. And he forced them to face each other, physically face each other and force them to basically square off in this backbiting, nasty debate, all vying for Trump's affections. And they played. That's the sad thing. Right. These, Gross. These people who <laughs> represent us in the U.S. Senate, the most exclusive club in the land, are much more interested in getting the approval of a terrible human being and and really a criminal who tried to overthrow our government. What's, right. What shocked me were, you know, Jane Timken, who at one point came out and and said Representative Gonzalez is a good guy, even though he had voted to impeach Donald Trump. Donald Trump pointed that out to her. Hey, you supported him. And she goes, yeah, but I tried to clean that up. I cleaned yeah. that up. And it's like, that's what you're doing. You're saying I threw away my statements because I was cleaning it up for you, my Lord and merciful one. I mean, it just boggles my mind that people seeking to represent us in the U.S. Senate are such sycophants to this 
to this human being. What did Josh Mandel say? He was just as bad, if not worse. Well, he was saying he was touting the fact that he had he was crushing Timken in early polling. You know, he also was bragging about how much he had committed to fundraising for Trump's reelection. And from what I understand from the story, it sounds like Mandel and Timken were most at each other's throats that the other two who have not declared their candidacy officially were kind of sideliners on this but one. But yeah, just just incredible story. Can, can I add in? This is Laura Johnson. Laura Johnson. You asked about Mandel. He, he called himself a killer. Like, yeah, so this right. is what he's out to do. <laughs> right. He what said is, he's got a team of killers. Right. Wouldn't you have appreciated, though, if just one of them said, I'm not doing this. I'm not a dancing bear for you. I don't give a damn if you endorse me or not. I'm not going to play your pathetic game, loser, and walked out. I mean, wouldn't you feel like that's somebody that you would start paying attention to as a candidate instead of these people just begging for his endorsement? God, it's just But then I guess they wouldn't have gone to this fundraiser in the first place, right? No, the former leader of your party says, hey, can you come and have a conversation with me? Out of respect to the the presidency and the party, you would go. But the minute you get there and realize the twisted game he's going to force you to play, you, you just wish. You know, Bernie Moreno or any of them would have said, not a chance, pal. I actually have integrity and I have self-respect. I'm not going to be your circus clown. But they didn't. They I, all I played. almost feel, though, that they I'm not saying that Trump didn't start this, but they were playing to the we've said this before. Who could be the Trumpiest? They started this competition among themselves without him. They're gross. I mean, could I just, add two things to this? this Jane Cahoon. Jane Cahoon. They paid fifty eight hundred dollars a piece just for the right to attend this fundraiser. <laughs> and where is the substance for voters in this race? I mean, Seth Richardson recently wrote a really good analysis about this, about them playing to, you know, for an audience of one. Like, wh- where's the substance? What do you mean? Wait. Josh Mandel is collecting Dr. Seuss books. Uh, in- <laughs> <laughs> but but this goes beyond even what he wrote, because it's not just that they're playing for an audience of one. It's that they'd sell their souls to get the endorsement of the audience of one. And is that who you want in leadership? What will they ever stand for if they were to, to win the Senate race? You know, we, we've talked about how we're ignoring Josh Mandel's ridiculous anti-Muslim tweets and things. And I've I've heard from so many people, many Republicans saying they can't stand him and that Ohio has to have a better Republican candidate, which is heartening because the Republicans recognize he's terrible and should not have this position. But who is that candidate? Because the four leading people right now all played the Hunger Games for Donald Trump. So, So who's number five who won't? Who's number five who will do the right thing and stand up and 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 be a leader? Well, you know, Steve Stivers, the uh, Republican congressman from the Columbus area, he tweeted afterward like a animated thing of Stephen Colbert, like eating popcorn, you know, responding <laughs> to this. And so he's he's actually considering getting in the race. And he's uh, he's not the Trump sycophant. Let's Can hope so. One last thing that at the end of the story talks about that. Trump asked if DeWine, Mike DeWine, Ohio's governor, was beatable. So you wonder if he's going to be sticking his nose in that. Well, DeWine managed his campaign. I mean, DeWine led his campaign to win Ohio. And even with that, he's turning on Mike DeWine. 
that's the, that's the endorsement you want. You Somebody know that has a yes. little character. Especially gross about this is that Trump doesn't care about where these candidates stand on any issue except loyalty to him. I mean, even right. the, what he what he takes issue with with DeWine is that DeWine called Biden the president elect. That's the thing that sticks in his craw. About, and and about he obviously doesn't governor. care about Ohio yeah. residents, right? And, this is not right. about what's best for Ohio. No, not at all. It's about it's about have you been raising money for me? Have you been loyal to me? Actually, I don't think it's loyalty, Layla. I think it's too weak a word. I think he wants adoration. And if you mm. don't show the highest level of adoration, you're dead to him. It's it's binary. Adore me or I hate you. Mm. You're listening to this week in the CLE. After months of having surplus coronavirus vaccine in rural areas and not enough in Ohio cities, why is Governor Mike DeWine just now saying he will redistribute it based on demand? Jane Cahoon, we've been pounding on this, pounding and pounding on this, wondering if he played politics and sent more to places where he has high political support, less to Democratic areas like where we live. He says not, but suddenly he's going to move it around. What's going on? Yeah, he says the state is going to get more aggressive in in shifting the supplies around of the vaccines, you know, hoping to distribute them based more on demand than on just eligibility. He said that uh, up until now, they they distributed the vaccines based on population statistics and so forth. He has a, a formula for this. Mostly, Let, let, me, let me interrupt you, though. He yeah. claims that's what he did. Yes. We've been asking for proof of that since Tuesday. They keep telling us it's coming, but it needs some kind of redaction, which I don't understand what could possibly be redacted. But they have yet to pony up the data that proves politics did not play a role. So go ahead. Right. We, uh, we are waiting for that, for sure. Anyway, now that things are opening up, you know, 16 and older are going to be officially eligible, I think, as of Monday. And there, in fact, a lot of younger people are getting it now because of these surpluses that exist. You know, DeWine's given them permission to to get it if the vaccines would otherwise go to waste. So anyway, he said now that they, they can be more strategic about this, which it's hard to kind of understand why they couldn't have done that before. But I guess this is something I wasn't aware of, that health departments and pharmacies have already been doing this, like shifting things around among themselves, where they see shortages and, and surpluses. And Although, so not enough, obviously, because we've heard from no end of people that have driven an hour or more to go get it. Leila Tassi, you're going to do another column about the vaccine queens, because you saw two more examples oh where they had to do heroic duty to help people that can't find it. I mean, look, the fact that there is surplus anywhere in the state, when people in Cuyahoga County and other cities simply cannot find it, it's mm-hmm. inexcusable. Can I jump in? Uh, yeah. a, a good friend who's a big fan of this podcast offered this interesting theory that I wanted to pose to you guys. He wondered if it's not so much that DeWine supplied rural parts of the state with disproportionately more vaccine, but rather that there's a surplus because, A, rural Republicans are opting out of getting it and that they're more likely to be, I don't know, COVID deniers, or B, that they have limited access because they, ha- they lack internet connectivity. And I, I'm, you know, my thought is that if it turns out that there that there's a true quantifiable disparity in how much vaccine went to those parts of the state versus the urban areas, that's a different story. But do we know that yet? Do we know we're still waiting to get the data? Right. Look, Mike DeWine insists I did not do that. I did not send it politically that I tried to do this by a formula. 
And you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but our job is to verify. And so we want the data. That might be the explanation. We may find that Mike DeWine very fairly distributed the vaccine, but the people in the cities were much more willing to get it, creating the shortages. Okay, Mm -hmm. fine. Although it does still raise the question, why did it take until now to start redistributing it? He's been sending it out for months. I'm in no way saying I believe politics did this. What I'm saying is I want the data to show it and we're going to get it because it's public record. Can um, can I pose another separate but related cynical question? (laughs) Do you think did DeWine open vaccine eligibility to all adults because we do indeed have enough vaccine to support everyone rushing for appointments all at once? Or did he do that? get us off his back because we were we were questioning the ethics of how he was making his decisions and which specific high risk categories he was excluding. This has been really bothering me these last couple of weeks because Uh, I know lots of people who are still having a hard time finding vaccine. And it it just strikes me that he was like, fine, everybody go, go get it so that we would stop harping on him for, you know, excluding certain high risk categories. And but a couple of weeks ago, we felt like it's time to just open it up that okay. by limiting it, you're keeping people from getting it. We posed the question in the press conference. He said, well, I'm, I'm not there yet. You know, there'll, there'll probably be a couple of more categories. I do think because I'm hearing from other states, Ohio, we're not in the lead of getting people vaccinated, but we're doing a lot right. A lot of people are getting vaccinated. There are people in neighboring states, your age, Layla, and your age, Laura, who can't get the vaccine. There are people my age in Michigan that cannot get the vaccine. And so I I actually think that what Mike DeWine has done is is going to put us in the forefront. It's one of the reasons I think we're not seeing the surge you're seeing in some of the adjoining states. I mean, Michigan now has more than a hundred percent increase in cases. And while our decreases have stopped, we're flattening out. We haven't seen the bump. Well, okay. I still feel like the supply is not keeping up with the demand, but, uh, you know, I'm going to catch up with the vaccine queens next week and they're the experts. They will tell me what they're seeing on the ground. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're going to go long today. Did Ohio lawmakers (laughs) finally repeal House Bill 6 nine months after learning of how corrupt it was? And did Bill Seitz fight to the end to preserve the bill? which would have stripped $2 billion from Ohio ratepayers and handed over to First Energy and a former subsidiary with no strings. Jane Coon, this is a big day, but it's kind of anticlimactic because they should have done this last July. Right. They did actually repeal the most egregious parts of House Bill 6, not the whole thing. But on Thursday, they gave final approval to this bill called House Bill 128, which dismantles two key parts of this corrupt bill. And one of them is the nuclear subsidies, and the other one is the uh, decoupling provision that that guaranteed First Energy a certain revenue every year based on a, a very you know profitable year that they they had. So this bill is on its way to Mike DeWine's desk. It's the first time that any of these bills that were under consideration has has cleared the legislature. DeWine has said he favors a repeal, so we expect him. To sign it. So, yeah, it, it rescinds these these big, as I said, most egregious parts of the bill. There was little opposition to it. And what one reason for that is because Energy Harbor, which is the former First Energy subsidiary that now owns these nuclear plants, has apparently actually lobbied for the option of turning down this bailout money because 
of a federal regulatory ruling that that could make these subsidies a liability for them in the market. And uh, you asked about Bill Sites. I think that was a reason because he was working with them behind the scenes that that he actually did vote for for this repeal. So we should note that even if DeWine signs this bill, other parts of it are going to remain in place. That includes these provisions that gut Ohio's energy efficiency programs and renewable energy mandates, as well as they have these subsidies for coal plants when it's in Indiana, not even Ohio. And there there are some solar subsidies that, that also right. remain in place. But but the parts of this that were the offen- the most offensive, the fact that they were going to strip $2 billion out of the pockets of Ohioans and hand it over with no evidence that it was needed, no thought about why is dead. And look, let's face it, First Energy spent $60 million for what became a gigantic bribery scheme to get this done. It was all very secret and absent the work of the federal prosecutors, we still wouldn't know about it today. And the, the, the money would be enriching First Energy shareholders. Uh, we still have no indictment against the First Energy CEO who was fired, do we? No, we, we don't have that yet. So and the former just, uh, <laughs> and the former POCO chairman whose house was raided and we later found out received a very suspicious four million dollar payment. And that's in addition to the 60 million in bribery. There's no indictment on Sam Randazzo yet either, is there? The investigation is ongoing. So we are we are waiting to see what happens. Well, I mean, it's good that they did this, but shame on them for taking this long to do it. Everybody was calling for this immediately after the indictments were unsealed last summer. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. (laughs) Is Cuyahoga County once again going to skip competitive bidding, this time with the proposal to replace the Justice Center in jail, a project that could be more than a billion dollars? And does the county even have that money? Laura Johnston, the, the the shocking part of this story to me is how fast they're proceeding when they do not have money identified. Right. And and even just watching the meeting, they saw a presentation from a consultant and they basically said, OK, to the point where Courtney Astolfi called them all back and said, did you talk about this beforehand? Because there was no discussion. But they say this design build process is going to end up saving the county money because they'll have a guaranteed maximum price. They want to hire a design builder who will then solicit sealed bids for our construction work and then award the contracts. The county can monitor the process to make sure it's competitive. And then if there's an overrun, the design builder would have to pay for it. So you wouldn't get the same kind of millions and millions more that taxpayers have to pay like they are doing with the IT system for the county. But this does raise a whole lot of questions, including about the cost. The county has not said how it plans to pay for it. Floating a bond would seem pretty burdensome since the county doesn't have a whole lot of money and the voters don't want to adopt new taxes. I mean, I assume at some point if they don't build the, you know, the courthouse downtown, they'll be able to sell that land. But that is a, a very good question. They're not going to get a billion dollars. Actually, I think it was Pete Krause who did the story, not Courtney. Uh, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. But look, this is this is an odd one because they don't have the money they, and and they don't have any bonding capacity within their current revenue. So they would need a vote of the people and people will never approve this. They've never approved anything like it. So they don't have the money. They don't have a likelihood of the money. What are they doing? I mean, 
they're going to spend this money. They're going to get this thing launched. They're going to do all this work. They're going to identify their site. And at some point, they're going to say, okay, we need a billion dollars or $800 million or $1.2 billion. And it's not there. I mean, it's just, this is folly. If you look at the way that Cleveland is going about building its police station, at every step, they're getting the money. So we had a story this week. They need to start doing some capital stuff out there. They're including that money in what the, the bonding they're going to do this year so that they're ready to pay for it. And I, what I don't get is why any contractor would get involved with this without knowing the money is encumbered. I mean, that's a very good question. It, this has been going on for a long time. I don't know how long they've been talking about it, but yeah, how they're going to pay for it has never been part of the discussion. They've been very focused on location. And their lack of transparency will not help them in their cause to persuade voters this is a good use of money. Frankly, I think you're going to start seeing an effort to restore a county commission form of government. There's so much disgust with the county executive form of government because of how incompetent the administration or Armand Budish has been. And they just keep doing this. They just keep saying it's not no bid. There'll be there'll be competition down the road. It's not no bid. It is. It's not. You're not using competitive bidding. Usually you hire an architect. They design a building. Then you go out to bid to say who can build this for the best price that's competent. And they, you get a good price. They did point out that this is how they built the Hilton Hotel. And obviously we're having a whole lot of issues with millions of dollars being spent on the Hilton. But they didn't have problems with overruns when it came to building it. I, I would expect county council to get involved here at some point. I feel like they've been a lot more aggressive lately and start asking questions. I don't know. They've pat, they've adopted every no-bid contract he's done. And look, Susan Glazer did a great story a couple of weeks ago about the Hilton Hotel. Right. Columbus did a much better job of laying in the financing for their hotel. Looking at the Hilton Hotel as the model, not a great idea when you look at what Columbus did. Anyway, I, I, I this one boggles my mind because we're spending money now. We're spending real money to design something that they cannot afford to build. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the House Bill 6 scandal the result of the biggest bribery scheme in Ohio history persuading legislators to change the law and require disclosure when companies donate money to political campaigns? Leila Tassi, I wouldn't have thought this was possible because of the supermajority in the legislature, but has HB 6 embarrassed these folks enough where they might do something good? It seems that's that's certainly possible. So my colleague Andrew Tobias had this story this week. House Bill 13 would require political nonprofits and other corporate groups to disclose their donors and spending with the Ohio Secretary of State's office in, in the same way that political action committees or political candidates have to. Among the groups that it would affect are 501c4s, political nonprofits often used as those vehicles for dark money spending or which is basically money that's legally structured to keep its donors anonymous. So basically groups like Generation Now, the dark money nonprofit that federal prosecutors say was concealing the $61 million that First Energy funneled toward the effort to, to get the nuclear bailout bill passed. So currently 501c4s don't have to disclose their donors and they only have to disclose their spending once a year to the IRS, often a year after it occurred. The new bill would require those disclosures several times a year. It also would specify that corporate political spending in support of Ohio ballot issues, not just political candidates, have to be disclosed to the states. So this got its first hearing before the House Government Oversight Committee. Apparently, similar bills have been proposed in the past, but never even got to the stage of having a hearing. So times seem to have changed. 
And, and this is the kind of thing that good government groups have been pushing for since House Bill 6 blew up. I mean, the fact that it's getting a hearing is great news. But you know what? Who counts on the Ohio legislature to do the right thing? Not me. I mean, <laughs> they just stripped the governor of his power to protect us from a pandemic. I think they're humoring us by having a hearing on this. That's my opinion. Okay. Yeah, I, I'd be shocked if they actually did this, but we can hope. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did the Mike DeWine metric for when he will lift coronavirus orders start going back up, as Rich Exner predicted earlier this week? Jane Cahoon, I guess it's not surprise, and it's kind of depressing. It is. Uh, Rich's prediction was just about perfect. I, I, he might have been off by like a tenth of a, a point, but Ohio reported a, a rate of 146.9 cases per 100,000 on Thursday. That was up from 143.8 per 100,000 a week ago. And just to remind folks, DeWine on March 4th said he would lift all of his health orders if we got to a rate of 50 cases per 100,000. So we are going backwards slightly. This was the first increase in that number since January 13th. The the rate was 155 two weeks ago and 170 about 179 three weeks ago when DeWine made this announcement. So yeah, it's it's a bit depressing. We had case rates go up in 52 of the 88 counties. We 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 still do have 55 counties on statewide red alert, but but that has decreased from recent weeks. You know, Rich and and Laura Hancock posted a, a bit of a deeper analysis on this uh, issue this morning, which which has some interesting facts that that kind of shed light on on this flattening out trend and and perhaps you know maybe show the impact of, of vaccinations. For example, older Ohioans are now accounting for smaller and smaller shares of both cases overall and and the severe cases that result in hospitalization. So as we know, more older people have been vaccinated. So so that's showing up a bit. So, so I mean, some experts think that the, the variants, the more contagious variants are, are playing a role in, in this uh, halt to the cases decreasing. Right, this is, we're in a mad dash right now. We're in a mad yes. dash between the variants, the much more contagious variants spreading and people getting vaccinated. It's We knew it would be. We knew when the when the variant first showed up in the United Kingdom and everybody went uh oh and the vaccine was coming it was like okay this is going to be interesting can we get everybody vaccinated before that spreads here and that's what we're in the middle of right now and the next six weeks are going to tell right right I think you get your final shot today right Jane tomorrow well tomorrow there you <laughs> go full protection you're listening to this week in the CLE. Everyone who gets their vaccine at the Wolstein Center in downtown Cleveland raves about how kind the folks from the Army and the National Guard are and how well run it is. Now they have a way to celebrate their fondness for this clinic while helping out a charity. Laura Johnston, what is it? And are you getting one? I am probably not going to get one, but my husband is a big T-shirt fan, so he'll he'll probably buy the T-shirt or I should buy it for him. Anyway, it's a really cool thing. Cleveland loves their T-shirts. And Jim Tooze, who's a comedian and animator from New York City, who actually spent some time in Cleveland when he was with the Coast Guard, has created this T-shirt that says, I got my vaccine at the Wolstein with like an outline in green of the Convocation Center building. It's $24.99. It benefits the Loveland Foundation, 
This is an organization that works to bring therapy, healing, and support to women and girls of color across the country. And the idea is Twos wants to make a t-shirt for every mass vaccination clinic in the country. So far, he started in New York where he lives. Like, I got shot in the Bronx and jabbed at the Javits. So he branched to Cleveland next because he actually went to Cleveland State and Tri-C while he's here. And so these these are, uh, hopefully we'll be seeing people sport these around town. And it rhymes, right? Make, yeah, you know? I mean, vaccine and Wolstein. Yeah, Man, it, and it, at least ours isn't that violent. I got shot in the Bronx. Heck? <laughs> <laughs> I know, you'll have to start thinking of puns for all the other ones, like the Kent Jabbed State it, one and it. the Civic yeah. Center. So, yeah. Yeah, hopefully there won't be anything about shootings. Yeah, right. That would be, really <laughs> that would, that would be a no. very poor taste. poor taste. Yeah, that would be bad. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do one more for fairness. We talk about Republicans at the top of the podcast being in trouble. Let's talk about a Democrat. Is the Newburgh Heights mayor Trevor Elkins in trouble for his admitted misuse of his campaign account? Layla, it's been a while since we had an update on this, but it looks like things are coming to a head for him. Yes, it does. The Ohio Elections Commission is set during its January 23rd meeting in Columbus to review this case. Elkins, he's acknowledged misusing the funds for years. He's saying he'd routinely use his campaign debit card to cover personal expenses, which county election officials estimate total roughly $130,000 over five years, dating back to 2015. But he says he repaid the money later. This came to light in an audit last year. Obviously, you can't use campaign funds as your personal piggy bank. But there's one more thing. His campaign paid $8,400 in April of 2019 to Executive Targeting and Consulting, a company he himself formed the month before. So what? <laughs> he said he said that money was for a legitimate expense and went to subcontractors. But, you know, I want to know more about that. <laughs> he says he says he understands that he broke the law by borrowing money from his campaign, but he says he didn't mean to do it. He insists that not only did he repay his campaign, but he overpaid. The campaign owes him, he says. So, <laughs> so he could, he could un- ultimately face criminal charges in this, though, which you know, ultimately could cost him his job. Yeah, right? I mean, the State Elections Commission could issue a fine. They could refer the matter to law enforcement for a criminal investigation, or they could choose to drop the case altogether, depending on how how the investigation shakes out. But he's calling this scrutiny a hit job, and he thinks that it all stems from a political vendetta because he basically tried to stage a coup within the Democratic Party several years ago, and he calls it a technical mistake. It's just a technicality. You know, I well, <laughs> I would argue that you you need to know nothing about the laws governing campaign finances to know you can't do what he did. <laughs> I mean, and- aliens, aliens from outer space could land here, <laughs> read this story at Cleveland.com and shake their heads, realizing that he broke the law. Am I wrong? Well, <laughs> no, and and if you're going to stage a coup, you really don't want to do it with this in your background because you do open yourself to legitimate investigations to say it's because of the coup. It's like, no, it's because you did it. <laughs> right. And you brought attention to yourself by trying to stage the coup. So people look for the Ohio Elections Commission to be on the verge of referring this for a possible felony charge is really something hmm. this commission rarely refers these kind of cases. And, you know, we thought they were going to do it yesterday, but they they put it off one more time. But mm. I mean, the comments from some of the people on the commission were just like, oh my gosh, this is so blatant. 
I, I was just going to say this is Laura, Laura Johnson. Johnson. That the defense should always just be it's a it's a personal vendetta. If I do anything wrong, I'm just going to say they're just coming after me. It just seems like the most blatant way to try to like, you know, make yourself look better. Or the Jimmy Demore defense that everybody does it either well, way. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's this week in the CLE. All right, that does it. We've run out of news. I don't know what we're going to talk about Monday because there can't possibly be any more. <laughs> any big plans for the weekend? Not working. <laughs> Getting my shot. <laughs> Get your shot. I hope you have no side effects. All right. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come back Monday, and I am sure we will have news to discuss.